The following message is by Dr. Cliff McManus, pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship, located in Mountain View, California. When Paul wrote, he didn't write numbers, chapter divisions, chapter verses. He just wrote it a letter like we write letters. And so it was held together not by numbers that you see in your English Bible or whatever. It's held together by a unit of thought and an argument or a certain theme. And so that theme or topic that should be held together in continuity is chapters 8, 9, and 10. And Paul just finished answering a question that the Corinthians asked about singleness and marriage, now that they're Christians. That was chapter 7. And now they ask a new question that Paul's going to answer and clarify in chapters 8, 9, and 10. It's a complex question because of the complex ways it can be understood and applied in different contexts. So that's why it takes three chapters to get there. Here's the essence of their question that they asked Paul that Paul's responding to. It's actually in verse 1. Now concerning, now concerning a new topic that you brought up in your letter that you wrote me, things sacrificed to idols, or food sacrificed to idols. Let's, let's talk about that for the next three chapters. Or another way it could be stated, here was the Corinthians question. Hey, Paul, is eating food sacrificed to an idol wrong or inherently sinful? That was the question. Or maybe closer to reality, it might be this question. Hey, Paul, what's wrong with eating food sacrificed to an idol anyway? Really? If that sounds a little arrogant, puffed up, cocky, then that's exactly the question because Paul makes it clear that that was the problem. And the question that they're asking about, oh, by the way, if I were to ask you, is eating food sacrificed to an idol wrong or sinful? It'd be, I'd be curious as to what your answer might be. Uh, some of you might say yes. Some of you might say no. And that was the problem at Corinth in the congregation where this practice of just food being sacrificed to an idol was rampant in their society. You couldn't get away from it. So it was a relevant question for them. And in the Corinthian congregation, they, they had people who answered it differently. Is eating food sacrificed to idols wrong? Some would say yes, absolutely all the time, no matter what. And then there were others who would probably say, no, it's not wrong. It's never wrong. What are you talking about? And then there might be some in the middle ground people like me. And I would argue like Paul. Is eating food sacrificed to an idol wrong or sinful? The answer is, well, it depends. That's the answer. That is the, that is the answer that Paul argues for. It depends. And I gave you about 20 gray areas last week. Issues, practices that aren't necessarily categorically black or white in the Bible. And you could take all those legitimate gray areas that I mentioned last week, and the answer would be the same. Is it always wrong to, or sinful to dance? I know Christians personally that would say yes. I know Christians that would say no. My answer would be, well, it depends. It depends. Uh, so that's how, that's what we're dealing with here are these gray areas. And a very important principle we talked about last week that's going to play into this chapter as we look at it is one of the most important things that we need to do in as we interact with other believers is carefully discern and diagnose 
whether an issue or a practice is in fact a gray area or not. We talked about it a little bit last week because there are Christians who call black and white issues gray when they're not gray. That's a problem. So that's step number one. Okay, here's an area. This person said it was a gray area issue. Is it really a gray area issue? And I gave a couple examples last week like uh, abortion. That's not a gray area from a Christian biblical point of view. Or marriage between a man and a woman. That is clear in Scripture. It's not debatable. Some would like to make it a gray area. So that's uh, the most important thing. And so we're going to see in chapters 8, 9, and 10, Paul has the same thing he has to deal with. They're asking, well, is eating sacrificed uh, food to an idol always wrong, Paul? And basically his answer is, well, it depends. And he gives three contexts that he's going to address where in the Corinthian culture, Food sacrificed to an idol could have been eaten by these Corinthian Christians. Sometimes it was wrong, sometimes it was not. One area where it was always wrong to eat food sacrificed to an idol was when Christians went into idol temples as Christians where they worshipped false gods and idols and were meeting with their friends and commiserating either socially or whatever and that food was being dedicated there on the spot to a false god, to Artemis or whoever it was and the Christian is a party to this and then they dedicate it to God, and then they share the meal. A Christian should not be a part of that at all. And Paul's going to talk explicitly, categorically about that at the end of chapter 8 and also in chapter 10. That would be, I was trying to think of modern-day examples of that would be analogous. And one that I thought of, and it's a true story, is a pastor I know who was a good friend of mine, um, and he, he still believes this today, that after he preaches, sometimes he'll invite everybody to go, hey, let's go, let's meet at uh, Joe's Bar and Grill afterwards. Let's go have a cold one and drink beer together and whatever in the local bar to the congregation or the church. And in his mind, that's a gray area. He has freedom and liberty to drink alcohol and drink beer and hang out there. And so he'll give an open invitation. And then, you know, the problem is the context. The context. Is it really beneficial and the right thing to do and a thing that honors the Lord to go to a bar at happy hour with a bunch of unbelievers, most of whom get drunk and whatever and whatever else goes on there as a Christian and publicize it. So uh, Paul basically says, don't do that. That's not a wise choice. Don't do that for many reasons. So he's going to give examples of that. And he, like I said, at the end of chapter 8, he gives that as an example. Um, then there was the context of possibly coming across meat dedicated to an idol. If you just went shopping at the local butcher shop in Paul's day and you bought some meat and you're wondering, hmm, I wonder if this at one time was prayed to or dedicated to some false god, but you don't know. And you're kind of, hmm, I don't know if this is kosher or not or should I eat this or whatever. Paul's going to deal with that in chapter 10. And then another context of food dedicated to idols is if you're invited to an unbeliever's home and they're all pagan worshipers. This would be like some of you going to your family's house at Thanksgiving or Christmas. You're the only Christian. Everybody else is a pagan. Well, they're various religions or whatever. And they're uh, having their meal. And they want you to be there because you're family. And they have drinks and uh, conversation and even vulgarity and humor and words and entertainment that is not biblical. And the food that they serve and the wine or whatever else. And as a Christian, you might be thinking, hmm, should I even be here among all these pagan people even though they're my relatives on a holiday and should I be uh, partaking of the turkey is this uh, Christian turkey or is this pagan turkey or ooh, what do I do um, so that's kind of an analogous situation Paul deals with that as well kind of a, a great it's a practical one because we all got to think through that 
So Paul's going to answer those questions for us as we go through. So that's the context and background of chapter 8. That's what we're dealing with here. Now, chapter 8, 9 and 10, is, again, it's very difficult uh, to interpret at face value on your own if you don't have the right context. And as I was looking through all my commentaries, they, some of them disagree big time. And these are Bible scholars I highly respect and coming from totally different points of view. But to help us be objective before we dive into the first part, verses 1 through 6, I want to set an objective context for you that hopefully helps us give the right interpretation of chapter 8. And that's just, first I wanted to talk about the words Paul uses. Paul uses the word knowledge 10 times in chapter 8, verses 1 through 13. Knowledge. So this chapter is about knowledge, about knowing, about knowing religious truth, spiritual truth, doctrine, and how to apply it. Knowledge. And what the Corinthians think they know. 10 times, knowledge. Uh, conscience is mentioned three times, verse between 7 and 13. So the latter half of chapter 8 is about a conscience and how your behavior as a Christian can affect the conscience of another believer. That is paramount. Conscience. How you think about theology. How you think about practicing the biblical ethic. Uh, sacrificed food is mentioned eight times. So that's what this chapter is about. Food sacrificed to an idol. Idols are mentioned ten times. This chapter is about idolatry. This section is about idolatry. Chapter 10, verse 14, Paul says, flee idolatry. So this is one long, long argument. Get away from it. Not just food sacrificed to idols. As Christians, you've been saved from idols, have nothing to do with them. They can pull you back into your old lifestyle. Now, I got some good feedback from the sermon last week and in particular, there were, other, there were some members or people here that reminded me of other gray areas, or they suggested gray areas. One was the Sabbath and how Christians, actually a few people actually brought up the Sabbath to me last week. How do we deal with the Sabbath? Is that a gray area? And I'd say, no, the Sabbath is not a gray area because it's, it's clearly in Scripture. A gray area is something that Scripture doesn't speak immediately to. And the Sabbath is directly spoken to in the New Testament in Colossians 2, Hebrews 4. Jesus also talked about it. So Christians aren't supposed to be celebrating the Mosaic Sabbath of Exodus 20 in the New Testament as the church. The Sabbath was practiced on Saturday. Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. The Sabbath was a picture of the Christ to come. He gives us rest, not a day that gives us rest. Jesus gives rest through salvation in Him, and that's why we celebrate Sunday as the Lord's Day. That is clear in Scripture, so the Sabbath, not a gray area. Uh, another one that was suggested was yoga. Is that a gray area? N no. I, I wrote on this seven years ago in Cliff's Notes, talked about it. I did a sermon on it. Yoga, which is a Hindu word, and those of you who know Hindi can correct me afterwards if I'm wrong, but this is what a guy who spoke Hindi told me and used to be a, a guru. This is what he did. He said the word yoga itself means to yoke, to yoke, to yoke your mind and yourself and your essence around the Hindu god Kundalini through your meditation and your mantra. That's what yoga means, yoke, to yoke around a Hindu god. Uh, and then he explained the whole idea, and he said, uh, his name was Ravi, he became a Christian, he used to be a Hindu guru, and he said, yoga shouldn't have any place in the life of a Christian. Now, if you want to do stretching and all that, that's fine. Stretching? Totally neutral? If you want to co-opt some of their stretches and it works, go for it. The issue is, uh, are you meditate? What are you thinking about while you're doing this? Are you meditating on a mantra? Have you bought into Eastern religion and Eastern mysticism? That is compromise. That is wrong. 
If you want to meditate on the Scriptures and memorize those while you're doing it, man, go for it. I don't know why you have to call it yoga if you're a Christian. I do yoga. I get yoked with kundalini. That's really what you're saying. Why don't you say I, I do some cool stretches that I borrowed from somebody? That works. Uh, Al Mohler's written on this, and he's been raked over the coals by Christians for taking a stand about yoga, and others have written some good stuff. CRI, Dave Hunt, 30 years ago, talked about this and exposed it. Anyway, uh, somebody brought that up. So I don't even think yoga and the Sabbath are gray areas. Those are just categorically clearly taught in Scripture in terms of the principles. Uh, somebody sa- said, what about cremation? And I thought, wow, that that is probably the grayest area there is. That was the best one. I'm thinking, why didn't I think of that? Um, because I've had to deal with that a lot. Christians who somebody, a, a loved one dies, and then the person that died, they're re- I, you need to cremate my body. Then I've had relatives, Christians, that violated their conscience. Wow, how's Jesus going to pull off the resurrection if we resurrect their body? Because their body's being dissolved in water. How can Jesus do that? And I'm thinking, really? I mean, okay, don't cremate them, bury them, and say Jesus comes back in like 3,000 years from now. Their body's going to disintegrate into dust anyway. And he's going to have to do the same kind of miracle to raise them from the dead, right? So, But cremation definitely is a practical gray area that Christians dispute over, and they scour the Scriptures trying to find principles. I'm not going to deal with cremation, but I just thought that was a great example of a gray area. Uh, so with that, uh, now I just want to highlight, the, here is the problem as we're going. Other big picture things we need to understand about chapter 8. When Paul addresses the Corinthians in chapter 8, he is addressing a problem. He's not commending them. He is not happy. He's trying to fix their wrong thinking. It's kind of a rebuke, actually. That's the context of chapter 8. You Corinthians, you're thinking wrong. You even took what I said earlier when I was your pastor and you tweaked it and twisted it and now you're misrepresenting what I said, taught, and believed. So he's addressing a problem. And then he's, there's the specific problem. And here's what the problem was with the Corinthians that just makes this worse. Here's the Corinthians. And don't forget this. They were new believers. Chapter 4, we already did this. Chapter 4, verse 15, Paul reminded them, I came in here, you weren't saved, I gave you the gospel, you got saved. They are new believers. They're not even five years old in the Lord. They are new believers. They are inexperienced. They are um, infantile. Just by virtue of experience. That's a problem. Secondly, not only were they new believers, they were immature. In chapter 3, verse 1, he called them babes. You are infants, you are immature. Now, not all new believers are immature. And not all believers who have been saved for 40 years are mature. You can have a 30-year-old saint be immature in their thinking. But the Corinthians, they were new believers in experience, but they were also spiritually immature. He says that explicitly in many places. What else was their problem, the Corinthians, that compounded the issue? They were arrogant. They, were arrogant. they, they thought they were full of knowledge. Chapter 1, at the very beginning, he said, I thank God that you have all knowledge. Uh, Was he being sarcastic? I don't know. He's pretty sarcastic throughout this epistle. Uh, Then in chapter 3.18, he says, you you guys are puffed up. Some of you think you know everything. Chapter 3, verse 18. Then in verse 4, or chapter 4, verse 18, he says, some of you are arrogant. He just said it categorically. I love you as a pastor, but some of you, you're just downright arrogant. And then some of their arrogance is just eking out all over the place here in chapter 8, 9, and 10. Then look at chapter 13 where he's still trying to deal with their arrogance. 
because they thought they knew so much. We have gnosis. We have knowledge. We've been saved. We have spiritual knowledge. We think on a higher plane. We know it all. So they're incredibly self-confident, wrongfully so, because of their knowledge and arrogance, because they thought they knew everything. And so in 1 Corinthians 13, look at that great familiar chapter where at the end, finally, just hit, Paul has to just poke a hole in their huge inflated head. <laughs> you guys are puffed up. You think you know everything. You're absolutely arrogant, uh, and you're lacking love. He keeps, that's a repeated theme. And then 1 Corinthians 13, uh, he says, uh, verse 2, If I have the gift of prophecy, and if I know all mysteries, and if I have all knowledge, he is mocking the Corinthians who thought they had all knowledge. If I know all, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains, but I do not have love, I am nothing. And that's a, just a, a pointed rebuke to the Corinthians. So they were puffed up. They were arrogant. They thought they knew it all. And that played into this issue. No, Paul, we can go to uh, Artemis's temple and socialize with our old colleagues and old friends and my old boss so that I can move up the business ladder and make more money and get in with the who's who of my company uh, at Artemis's temple. And I can eat their food dedicated to Demetrius or all those false gods. What's wrong with that, Paul? I mean, you told us that idols weren't real anyway. Whoop-de-doo. That's their arrogant attitude. So what they were saying is, Paul, I know that idols aren't real. I know that meat can't be contaminated by a demon. So who cares where I ate it? Who cares if I'm in a false temple and with false religious people endorsing their false religious practices? I know, we know, we know. So that was their mantra or their adage. So they were totally arrogant. Uh, also, their problem was they were tolerant of worldliness. He's already addressed that. Chapter 618, they were tolerant of sexual immorality. They were tolerant of fighting and arguing. They were tolerant of licentiousness and accepting the things of the world and being squeezed in the mold by the secular, sinful, wicked world. They were carnal. They were fleshly. They were living down here on the human level. And that also plays into chapter 8 here. Uh, and then they were divisive. There are quarrels among you, chapter 1, verse 11. And so there, there's division going on here, at least between what we think are strong, arrogant, puffed-up Corinthian Christians and weak Corinthian Christians, and they're kind of going at it and squabbling and judging each other over gray area issues and eating food in particular. And another element or variable that contributes to this whole discussion is it was a mixed congregation. You had saved Gentiles. You also had saved Jews. Already those two backgrounds of religions uh, disagreed vehemently with one another about food and what to eat, what not to eat, what kind of food not to eat. And then also added the mix where you had these saved pagan Gentiles, some of which were rich and slave owners, and some who got saved were slaves and owned nothing and had a certain lifestyle that wasn't up here in the stratosphere of the social elites of those who were rich and wealthy. And so they also had different perspectives and backgrounds. So there's just this clash of sinners over this issue, over these gray area issues. Not all these issues, though, are gray, as Paul will tell us. So with that background, let's go ahead and go to uh, point number one. This week I gave you a new outline that I think actually is better. I just broke it up into two, verse 1 through 6. You can fill those in now. Uh, We're going to talk about the affirmation, verses 1 through 6. And then point number 2 is mainly the admonition. Now, I I call point number 2 the admonition 
because in verse 9, circle verse 9 or highlight verse 9 or whatever, because in this entire chapter there is one imperative, there is one command, there is one thing that Paul wants them to take away from this discussion, and it is in verse 9. I said this, I said this, I said this, I laid this down, this theology, this doctrine. As a result, as Christians, this is what you must do, and it is verse 9. And we're going to get to that probably next week. And that is, but take care lest this liberty of yours somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. But before he gets to the admonition or the imperative or the exhortation, he's got to lay the groundwork. Correct theology, tweak their thinking, adjust their illegitimate question. It was a legitimate question, but they pulled it out of context. So point number one, let's go ahead and look at that. The first six verses, the affirmation. Uh, Paul reinforces correct thinking. Of the strong. So he doesn't want to be misrepresented again. I mean, he came in there, he preached the truth, and then he leaves, and then they're taking little pithy statements that he made out of context, and they're twisting what Paul meant by what he said. So even though this chapter is a rebuke, he before he deals with the rebuke, he wants to establish common ground and recognize where the Corinthians are actually correct in their thinking. Some of their thinking is wrong, but some of their thinking is correct. So he wants to reestablish and reaffirm. Keep thinking this way that was correct. Got to tweak it over here. So that's what he's going to do. So he's going to reinforce correct thinking while straightening out their erroneous thinking. So let's go ahead and look at verses 1 through 6. Uh, he introduces the topic, now concerning things sacrificed to idols. The things are food sacrificed to false idols. What do we do about it? Is it okay to eat it or not? And then he says this phrase, we know that we all have knowledge. Now, most commentators, and I would tend to agree, believe that Paul is actually quoting the Corinthians in that phrase. And the Corinthians phrase was, we have all knowledge. We have all knowledge. Because Paul actually has said that before in some of his epistles. If you know Christ, you have everything. If you know Christ, you possess everything. Christ is omniscient. Christ knows all things. God possesses all truth. If you know God and you're in his family, you are in Christ. Therefore, you have all knowledge at your disposal only through Christ. But they actually twisted that and they're not God and we're not God and we're not infinite. Only God is. And so the mantra or the adage that they took away from that was they were boasting that they had all knowledge. As Christians, now that we are saved, we have all knowledge. And the context probably is indicating they weren't saying they have all knowledge about everything. They have all knowledge about this topic. In other words, if Paul came in and said, hey, I heard some of you were at the local temple eating dinner with the meat that was sacrificed to Artemis publicly and everybody saw you and there were people from your church walking by and they saw it and they were struggling and some of them stumbled and some of them thought because you were there that you endorsed uh, drinking certain things and worshiping gods and going to idols. And so some of those believers have reverted back into their old lifestyle and now they're doing it because you endorsed it. And now they're caught and they're trapped, your weaker brother. You realize that's what you did by your behavior? And so the all know, and then their response would be, well, Paul, we know that idols aren't real gods anyway because you said that. We have this knowledge. It's not my problem that the weaker brother understood and thought the wrong thing about why we were in there and what we were doing. We weren't worshiping the false god. We were just eating the meat. We didn't compromise. Well, your weaker brother didn't know that. They saw you in there with all the dirty deeds going on. Well, we know. We know. We know. Paul, you should know that we know this theological truth. So that's the phrase right there. We have all knowledge. Could very well be something that the Corinthians were saying. 
So they were proud of their knowledge. They were arrogant in what they knew. And they're actually going toe-to-toe at times with the Apostle Paul about their knowledge. And Paul says, well, okay, if you want to argue that, we know, and the Apostle Paul at the beginning, he's talking at the beginning, well, we do know that we have all knowledge. Christians have knowledge that God has given us His revelation on certain topics. That is true. So we do have knowledge about idols, and he'll address that in a second. But he says that's not the priority here. What is the priority, and you uh, Corinthians are not getting, and you're clueless about, and you're offensive about, this knowledge that you supposedly had, knowledge makes arrogant. That's verse 1. Some of your translations might say, knowledge puffs up. And that's a better literal translation. In other words, taking in academic knowledge or just learning facts and truths intellectually can inflate your head. That's what the word means, puff up. So it was a head knowledge. Paul is saying, strict head knowledge, accumulating facts and data isn't enough, and if that is all you're doing, all you're doing is puffing up your big, fat head. Knowledge makes arrogant. Knowledge puffs up. You people have become know-it-alls. You think you know it all, and you look down your nose in condescension towards everybody else that doesn't know as much as you. That is prideful. That is arrogant. That is wrong. That is critical. That is judgmental. That it lacks humility. There's just a zillion things wrong with it. So Paul just cuts right to the issue. This is the problem. You guys are puffed up. Knowledge alone makes arrogant. The important thing that they're missing, the Corinthians are, is love. Love, but love edifies. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. The word for uh, edifies is literally builds up. Oika dameo. Oikos, meaning yogurt. I mean house. There's a new Greek yogurt called oikos. So oikos plus dameo. Dameo is to build. Oikos means house or family. So to build up a house is edifying. That's what you do. When you are edifying to somebody, you're building them up. You're constructing them in a fruitful, good, honorable way. And so that should be the goal of a Christian. To their fellow Christians, you should always be saying things and doing things that build up or encourage your fellow Christian. Build up. Not puffed up. So we have a choice. You can... uh, Puffed up till you blow up, so it's either blow up or build up. What do you want to do? And the Christian should be given to true love, not just accumulating facts and data, but taking your knowledge, having it drenched and surrounded in the context of love. That's the call of the Christian. Many of the Corinthians, they could care less about love. That's why they need another reminder in chapter 13. They're just going to keep hearing it from Paul. That's why I said if you have... Knowledge, but you don't have love, you are a zero, you are nothing. It's easy to accumulate facts and data and information and stuff it in your head. And it's not spiritual if you don't have love, if you don't understand it the right way, if it's not energized by the Holy Spirit, the fruit of whom is love. That's the first of the fruits of the Spirit. Especially in this day and age where we just have uh, the Internet, where we can just take in, I mean, like an IV, all the information off of the Internet getting filled with all that data and facts and information. I know this and I'm an expert in this. and I blah, 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 blah. That's how we get it. It's a temptation of amassing data and information. And so Corinthians didn't get it. As a matter of fact, the Corinthians were kind of perceived knowledge in a different way than traditional, biblical, historic Hebrews did. Because biblically speaking, in a Hebrew frame of mind, you actually didn't know something truly until you were able to apply it and live it out the right way. You just had head knowledge, 
You didn't know it. That was just head knowledge. If you had the information, the facts, and the data in your head, and then you applied it in a godly manner, that wasn't just knowledge. That was actually wisdom. So there's a huge difference between knowledge and godly wisdom. And the Corinthians, they didn't understand biblical, godly, heavenly wisdom. But their problem was they were arrogant, they were puffed up. They need love, they lack it. And look at verse 2. He goes a little further about their arrogance. They think they know it all, they're know-it-alls. If anyone supposed that he knows anything, and he's talking about the Corinthians. Some of you think you know everything. Maybe you do. Maybe you do have a lot of knowledge. But if you think you know everything, the fact is he has not yet known as he ought to know. If you think you know everything, you're dead wrong. You're arrogant, you're blind, you're prideful. Because nobody has arrived in this life as far as sinners go. We are all finite, we are all sinful, we are all always learning, or we should be as believers, right? As long as we're alive, we should be growing, learning, remaining teachable, remaining humble. None of us has ever arrived in this life. They didn't have that mindset. We need to apply that mindset. That's a good lesson for all of us. Remind us, no matter where we are in our Christian life, regardless of how long we've been saved, or what school we went to, or what church we go to, or what Bible study you go to, we haven't arrived. We are all still learning. We are all still growing. We are all still in progress, right? It's a great practical lesson. We need to apply it. The Corinthians, they, a lot of them, they didn't get this. But that's what Paul is saying. If anyone thinks he knows anything, if, you think, if you're an old all and you think you, you don't know anything, Verse 3, but what is really important, but if anyone loves God, he is known by him. It's not what you know, it's what God knows. And who God knows is the important thing. That's verse 3. You didn't come to know God on your own. You didn't work for your salvation. You didn't deserve your salvation. It was all a work of God and the grace of God. And you were undeserving. I was undeserving. He sought after me aggressively, proactively with the gospel out of his grace to rescue me, to save me through the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's trying to remind them where they came from. Knowing God is the most important thing, not what you know. What a great reminder. And then just the fact that he talks about and giving a true definition and context of what true knowledge is. He's not saying knowledge is a bad word. Knowledge is actually a good word. It's a biblical word. But there's a right way to know. There's a wrong way to know. There's a right way to define knowing something spiritually. And there's a wrong way to understand it. So... I wanted to camp out on verse 3 because this is so important about what does it mean to truly know something in a biblical and spiritual sense that the Corinthians didn't get. The problem with the Corinthians is when they thought about knowledge, they just thought it was an intellectual pursuit. Whereas from a biblical point of view, knowledge and knowing is also a relational pursuit or a personal pursuit and a spiritual pursuit pursuit and an intimate relationship actually that's what true knowledge is so it's got a lot of dimensions to it and the bible emphasizes many times the personal relational component of knowledge go if you have a bible look at genesis chapter 4 i want to look at three scriptures regarding what it means to know something biblically true knowledge not just facts not just data not just an intellectual wooden exercise but the personal component to it. Chapter 4 of Genesis 1. This is the New American Standard. It says, Now the man, that's Adam, had relations with his wife Eve. Okay, this is a, a euphemism. 
that Moses is using as he writes this. Adam had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived. In other words, she got pregnant. Adam had relations with Eve. She became pregnant. The NIV says Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she conceived, got pregnant. The King James, the ESV, and the New King James, I think, give a better translation because they're more literal here. And it's more helpful. It says this. Now, Adam knew his wife Eve. That is literally what the Greek translation of the Old Testament says. It's the same word Paul uses in the New Testament for know. Gnosis. To know. Knowledge. So, Adam knew Eve, and she got pregnant. So the word know is a euphemism for sexual intimacy in this verse, which emphasizes that very personal relational element of the word know from a biblical point of view. This wasn't just intellectual, heady knowledge. So very important. Adam knew Eve, she became pregnant. Uh, Staying on that personal side of the word knowledge, go to John chapter 17 in the New Testament. Jesus is about to go to the cross. He's with his 11 apostles. He's praying his high priestly prayer. He's praying to God the Father in all of chapter 17. Now, before you look at chapter 17, if I were, it'd be kind of interesting if I asked all of you, okay, we're taking a pop quiz. And uh, on your white card today, I want you to write a one-sentence definition of what it means of what eternal life is. So you start out, eternal life is... And then you write it down, and then you turn that into me, and I read through all those. That would be very interesting to see what you come up with. What is eternal life? A lot of times Christians really struggle with that. Mm, yeah, how do I simply distill it down and define it in its most basic terms? Well, you don't need to because Jesus already did that for us. And that's John seventeen three. Jesus is praying to the Father, and Jesus says this, and this is eternal life. That is amazing, an amazing definitional statement. This is eternal life from Jesus himself. What is the essence of eternal life? Some people think it's just really, 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 really long, long, long life, living forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. No, that is not biblical eternal life. Unbelievers will live forever in judgment and in hell away from God. So it's not just living forever. It's not just time. It has to do with relationship. This is eternal life that they may know. There it is. That believers would know and have a personal relationship with God the Father and with Jesus Christ whom he has sent. So it's not the quantity of life as much as it is the quality of life. Knowing Jesus Christ, knowing God the Father through Jesus Christ and through his gospel. And that's the same word, the same word there for know. Gnosis that Paul is using in 1 Corinthians. So uh, we're not going to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1, but Peter writes to the Christians and he says, God has chosen you, Christian. God has chosen. Do I believe in election? Yeah, I do. Why? Because it's in the Bible. And it's in 1 Peter chapter 1. God has chosen you, Christian. Don't forget that. And how did he do it? Why did he do it? He did it in accordance with his preordained love for you, his foreknowledge, his prognosis. So again, that word for knowledge in 1 Peter chapter 1 means love from God that he set on you as to why he elected you unto salvation. His love for you that was set on you before the foundation of the world in eternity past, absolutely mind-boggling. How does that work? I do not know. I am not God. It's amazing. But again, Peter uses that word of knowing, emphasizing the personal, intimate relationship 
uh, between two parties. And so that's really what love means. And that's why Paul says this emphatically. If you have knowledge without love, you don't know what knowledge is. More importantly, is to know that, that you are known by God and saved by Him. Let's go on back to 1 Corinthians 8 now. And again, he's going to affirm some truths and things that they were thinking, adding a corrective. Verse 4, Therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, well, we know that there is no such thing. And so now he's talking collectively as Christians. Well, we all know as Christians, or at least we should, that there is no such thing as an idol. Yeah, that's true. I said that. Idols are not real. They're made of man. Uh, they're not personal. Uh, as a Christian, we should realize it's just a piece of wood. It's a rock. Can't do anything. It's lifeless. Figment of imagination. But there are demons behind those idols when idolatry is practiced. But the idol itself is nothing. The statue is nothing. Christians should know that. So here he's reaffirming a foundational truth of our knowledge of God and idols. We know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no one God but one alone. So we, monotheism, there's only one God. Deuteronomy 6.4. I told you Corinthians that in the beginning. You can't be saved apart from believing that. There's only one God. It is Father, Son, and uh, the Holy Spirit, the triune God of the universe. So he's reaffirming basic Christian theology to establish that foundation so they have common ground, so he, he can correct their thinking and their behavior. Then he goes on, verse 5, and he gets theoretical. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and so-called many lords, I mean, they lived in a culture where the Corinthian pagans worshipped a zillion gods. They had a god for everything. We talked about that last week. God here, God there, God everywhere. Some religions are like that today. A zillion gods, a zillion lords, a zillion saints that are supernatural and divine, supposedly. Even if that were the case, by the world standards, verse 6, yet for us as Christians, there is only one God. It doesn't matter what the world believes and says or what they practice. What matters is what is true for you as a Christian. Get that ingrained in your brain. There is only one God in terms of reality. It is the triune God. For thus there is one God. It is the Father, first of all, from whom are all things. He is the great creator. And we exist for him. He brought us into life. He created us. We exist for his glory. The part of God, the triune God, is also the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's why Paul adds in the middle of verse 6, and one Lord, Kurios. Kurios many times uh, also spoke of the essence of God himself. So Paul is affirming that Jesus also is God. He is divine. He is deity. He's one in nature with the Father. They are distinct persons, but they make up the one God of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things. So that's interesting, those two phrases. Uh, from whom are all things. God the Father is the creator of all things, but the agency of creation was Jesus. God the Father created everything through Jesus Christ. Who is the creator, God the Father or Jesus? The answer is yes, and the Holy Spirit. And that's what he's saying here. They all have distinct roles as the one God through whom are all things. And we exist through Christ. God the Father saved us. Jesus saved us. The Holy Spirit saved us through the gospel. So there is his affirmation. Again, laying that, being very particular, specific, and laying that common ground of theological foundation that they could agree on that will be the basis by which now they can proceed in dealing with gray area issues. And that's how we need to deal with gray area issues in our day. How do we think through, say a Christian comes to you here at GBF and uh, maybe a couple parties, and they're arguing and squabbling about whether cre cre cremation is right or wrong. 
And you are the arbiter. You are the counselor. How are you going to offer? Not what advice you're going to give. How? What is your procedure? What's your methodology? How are you going to begin to answer the question? You do what Paul did. You establish a common ground, a baseline of basic biblical truth, basic Christianity, vital foundational truths that will be the rock bed of any issue we have to deal with that you might have to reaffirm and get everybody on the same page that's how i counsel that's biblical counseling you got two parties who disagree on something no matter what the topic and you do diagnose and see what they think about the most basic issues pertinent to that matter and just about every single time you realize they do not agree on a very basic essential presupposition that they should agree on in terms of biblical truth and then you're trying to bring both of them up to speed so that they are agreeing the same thing on a biblical truth and then you have a better chance of bringing them unity in the application of that biblical truth. So if I was going to take two parties who couldn't, Christians who couldn't agree on cremation, I'd want to know what they think about the afterlife, about resurrection, about how Jesus resurrects people, the status of Jesus' resurrection body, uh, and I would uh, what they think of death, what happens to the body, on and on. Their whole view of eschatology, and make sure they have an exhaustive, clear understanding of basic truths in the Bible on that issue. And I guarantee... One of them is probably going to be off. And they need some remedial theology in death, resurrection, eschatology, whatever, to bring them up to speed, and then you can pursue harmony with an exhortation to all. That is exactly what Paul is going to do in the rest of chapter 8. Establish that common ground. Okay, here's what we all should agree on. Maybe the, the weak Christians might have been a little ignorant or they forgot or they were unaware of some of these truths about the nature of God, that there's only one God. And so that's where maybe they needed to be brought up to speed. Now Paul has reiterated that, and then Paul is going to say, okay, as a result, boom, here is the exhortation for all to comply with. And trusting that truth is going to unify, because that's what truth does for true believers. We should be united in love and in the truth. So some practical application for us today uh, that I thought of is as we interact with each other as fellow believers, uh, we got to be real careful about diagnosing issues, whether they are black and white or whether they are truly gray. Then examining ourselves first and see, are, are we in the right place? Are we thinking properly about certain issues? Or do does our theology need to be corrected and brought up to speed? And are we going to be a peacemaker? Do we Are we motivated by love? Or is it just, I want to be right, I want to get my way? Or is the love of Christ paramount in my heart towards my fellow believer? Because that is the Christian ethic, that was the way of Christ. Uh, so those are some great reminders for us that we can take away from this. And then next week we'll pick up, or actually in two weeks, we'll pick up uh, the latter half of this all-important chapter. With that, let's go ahead and pray. And just a reminder, uh, we'll have a song that we will have during our uh, benevolence offering, and then after that we will be dismissed. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, we thank you for our time together. A precious time in your word. Continue to be our, our teacher through your Holy Spirit. Thank you for truth you gave the Apostle Paul that is even relevant to us today. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, Lord. Enable us to walk by the Spirit so that we will exhibit true fruits of the Spirit, uh, the first of which is love, and that's love towards other people and love towards other believers. And help us to put our own agendas aside. 
Help us to examine our own hearts. Continue to enlighten us from the truth of Your Word and remind us, most importantly, we need to live and think in a way that pleases You in all things, but we need Your help and Your grace to make that possible. We thank You. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening. Dr. McManus is an author, seminary professor, and pastor-teacher of Grace Bible Fellowship. For more information about Dr. McManus, other messages, or resources, please visit gbfsv.org or call us at 650-630-0009.